How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Back in the 1800s, Americans were the tallest people in the world. Well, on average, at least. And unfortunately, that form of American exceptionalism is long gone. Nowadays, the average height for American women ranks 58th in the world. Men, 47th. And in fact, the decline in average height for Americans has been going on for quite some time. So what exactly is going on? What is manifesting itself in American bodies? That's what we're going to talk about today. And joining us now is John Komlos. He's one of the pioneers of the study of population height and what it reveals about society. And he's a professor emeritus in economics and economic history at the University of Munich in Germany. Professor Komlos, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, um, tell us, you've been, you're the leader, if not one of the leaders of uh, the study of height and populations. What actually attracted you to this, this field, first of all? Height is a very important indicator of how well the human uh, organism thrives in its socioeconomic uh, environment. And uh, it is particularly important because it pertains to children and youth on whom uh, we do not have uh, many economic indicators. So as economists, we use uh, indicators like uh, money income, GDP per capita, and so forth. But these indicators do not pertain to uh, children and youth, and therefore... I thought that we needed an additional indicator for this group in the population. And it's very important uh, what happens to the human organism during the first 20 years of life. Mm. And it's important to know that it's the first 20 years and what happens after that is a different uh, story. Yeah. Okay. So, so before we get into what's been happening here in the United States, I'd love to um, know about how far back does your data go in terms of uh, average population uh, for various countries? Uh, there, There's archaeological evidence, and uh, that is something that I have not uh, dwelled into. I uh, use uh, written evidence, archival evidence, and that goes back to the early 18th century, when the French military began to uh, measure the height of uh, soldiers. And that, of course, means that uh, it pertains to the birth cohorts of the late 17th century. 
from then on, we have all sorts of uh, different um, um, data available to us, uh, like uh, military records, West Point uh, cadets, uh, Civil War soldiers, runaway slaves, runaway indentured servants on which there were advertisements in newspapers that could be collected, and uh, schools that uh, uh, that uh, recorded the height of uh, students. So there are the whole bunch passport applicants, a whole bunch of different records. Mm. Can you tell me more about those early military records? I mean, how did you? It sounds like there's a somewhat of a detective story here too. How did you? <laughs> well, how did you find them? <laughs> well, uh, many of these records are in archives, and they're not easy to find. And even when you do find them, uh, they're not easy to work with because uh, they haven't been looked at for sometimes two hundred or three hundred years, <laughs> and the. Uh, you know, it takes a little bit of it's very dusty, and uh, the um, the writing is not always easy to decipher. So it, it was a bit of a detective work, and it, it it took some while to collect hundreds of thousands of data. <laughs> okay, well, um, sticking with history here for a moment, because I want to um, understand if there's a pattern that we've been seeing for several hundred years in terms of what. It, um, has an impact on adult average height. Uh, were were there differences amongst groups that were evident? Let's say in the uh, in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, uh, one important pattern is that social status is always and everywhere an important uh, indicator um, because. People who are better off are taller. So the arist aristocracy, for example, is taller than the average height. Students are taller usually than the average height. Passport applicants uh, in the 19th century U.S. are much taller than the average because uh, they were the from the better off segment of the population. So yes, there that is one important aspect. The other one is that economic transformation always leaves an imprint on the human body. So the uh, advent of agriculture, for example, during the agricultural revolution meant that for a while people became shorter because their protein supply uh, declined, population density was greater, and um, that left an imprint on the human body. The same thing with the Industrial Revolution, the same thing with the onset of modern economic growth. And it appears that uh, within the last few decades, the advent of the knowledge economy also meant also uh, has the same pattern that the american population's height either stagnated or declined for similar reasons this is remarkable professor yes, so you're saying that yes. economic transition leaves a mark on the human body all the transitions yes. that you described though the you know the idea at least in um 
in capitalism is that they lead to efficient, more productive economies. But I didn't hear you describe a positive impact or a positive mark on the human body. <laughs> well, right. It, it's a uh, more productive economy, uh, let's say, with the Industrial Revolution, definitely. But the people who are working in cities are not making uh, sufficient amounts of money to be able to afford food, nutrition at the same rate as they did when they were living nearer to the food supply and closer to the um, animal products uh, that were being produced. So population density has a very important role to play. Urbanization has a very important role to play because food is more uh, expensive in an urban environment. So that is why it is so important to, uh, to consider height because it pertains again to children and youth mm. who are not earning an income and yet the parents uh, very often have to um, uh, pay a higher price for the nutrition even though the economy may be more productive. Yeah. Well, but of course, to state the obvious, the lower incomes earned by industrial era uh, Industrial Revolution era workers, or, or let's say the, the larger fraction of their income that they had to spend on food, that didn't just happen by accident, right? Someone was setting their wages. So, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. No, no, go ahead if you wanted to respond to that. No, well, the same thing happens in America. American population in the uh, 1840s birth cohort, let's say, it has an incredible amount of food supply available to it relative to Europe. And Americans are taller than Europeans by a couple of inch. But at the same time, urbanization in the 1840s is proceeding at such a rate that uh, food prices increase. And as a consequence, the population's height declines. It's, uh, it's an incredible uh, story. Mm. So you're seeing that strong correlation regardless of what uh, essentially historical era you're looking at. There's one more thing, though, about the 18th and 19th centuries, particularly in the United States, that I wanted to ask you about in terms of where you got records from and what it shows. Because, of course, the, the slave trade was, um, was quite active at that time. And if I understand correctly, it involved, if not some, then uh, quite a bit of detailed record keeping because... Of course, of course, those enslaved people were, you know, considered um, property and commodity to be traded, and those things are very carefully tracked. Did you, did you find data um, from that uh, section of, of American history? Yes, actually, somebody else uh, studied that um, uh, that data set. Uh, it pertains to the coastwise manifests because slaves that were traded. Um, uh, their height were recorded on account of the fact that they it had to be uh, had to be uh, documented that they were actually American slaves and not imported slaves because imports were no longer uh, allowed. So the height of slaves was measured, and it's uh, extremely interest important to know that um, they were, of course, shorter than American whites, because obviously their nutrition was uh, not, uh, you know, not as good 
but they were taller than those who they left behind in Africa, which uh, uh, means that um, the American nutritional environment was much better than what was available in Africa. So that's uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, realization. Mm. Okay, so we're headed towards the break here. We have about 30 seconds left, uh, Professor Komlos. Do you mind if I quickly ask you, and you free, free, you're free not to answer this question, but I'm just curious, okay. How, okay. How, how tall are you? I'm 5'7". You're 5'7". <laughs> we're the same height. Okay. 5'7". <laughs> but you have to uh, take into consideration that I was born during the Holocaust mm. uh, in Hungary in 1944. So my nutrition in the womb was uh, not particularly good. I'm um, two inches shorter than my father. I see. Well, so that gets us again to this truth that your research has revealed that circumstances, environment policies do imprint themselves literally on our bodies. So today we are talking about why Americans are getting, on average, shorter. We'll have a lot more in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we are talking about why Americans since the 1980s, and particularly we're talking about people born uh, in the 1980s and thereafter, end up having smaller or lower stature adult heights than generations before. A broader way of saying that is that Americans are shrinking. I'm joined today by John Komlos. He's professor emeritus in economics and economic history at the University of Munich in Germany. He happens to join us today from North Carolina. And before we get back to our our examination of what's going on in the United States, I want to look to another period of time in another country for an example about how we have seen rapid changes in average national height before, but in the other direction. Because today, Dutch men and women are the tallest in the world on average. They've held that position as number one in height for a couple of decades now, but it wasn't always so. Dutch men born in 1930 were about five foot nine inches tall on average. Women, five foot five. But just 30, excuse me, but just 50 years later, men born in 1980 in the Netherlands grew to a remarkable six feet tall on average. Women, five foot seven. 
Now, that quick rise came after 1945, because prior to that, during World War II, the Netherlands suffered severely under Nazi occupation. Very little food, and the winters were long, and all children started to suffer from malnutrition. So God knows I know the value of food, and I was suffering from a rather uh, high degree of, of malnutrition when the war ended. But as a child, and considering that you had very little food, and as you say, you were malnourished, what sort of dreams of food did you have, or little fantasies? Oh, we, that, that was a great topic of conversation, of what we were going to eat when the war ended. <laughs> and it usually had lots to do with bread, butter, and lots of jam, or something, you know, very sweet things, or whole boxes of chocolate, or, you know. And in fact, I think one of the first things I did was eat a whole can of condensed milk and then was terribly ill afterwards. You know, sweet things is what I longed for. Now that happens to be legendary actress Audrey Hepburn in a 1988 interview with the British talk show Sunday Sunday. Hepburn spent much of her childhood and all of her teen years growing up in the Netherlands, which means she and her family lived through the Dutch famine brought on by the war. Food was so scarce Hepburn's family, like many others in the Netherlands, resorted to making baking flour out of tulip bulbs. So, of course, that scarcity took its toll. The average height of Dutch children fell temporarily as a result of the war. But after Allied forces defeated the Nazis, independent Netherlands achieved a meteoric rise in average height. Economic historian Jorg Botten says that's thanks to two related factors— One, the Dutch had, in fact, been getting taller before World War II. There was a revolution taking place in the late 19th century in the Netherlands, as well as similar countries, but most extreme in the Netherlands, that we see a strong increase in agricultural productivity. So basically, it was the new fertilizers. So those new, cheap fertilizers allowed the densely populated Netherlands to produce more food from its limited agricultural land, particularly certain forms of protein. So we uh, basically love milk and cheese. That's Hurt Stulp, a sociologist at the University of Groningen. He says the Netherlands has one of the highest rates of dairy consumption. And of course, that was severely interrupted in World War II, which I want to just emphasize again. But that high rate of dairy consumption appears to be good for children's growth. And these effects can be massive. We know, particularly from milk, there have been many studies that if you consistently drink milk Uh, across your entire childhood, that this can add up to so much as two or three inches uh, later on. So the Netherlands produced and consumed a lot of milk. But other countries also increased protein consumption during the 20th century, thanks to more efficient agriculture. So the Dutch aren't alone there. What's special about the Netherlands is the social safety net that post-war Netherlands created, which, according to Jorg Botten, helped make the Netherlands one of the most egalitarian countries in the region. They invested very much in, for example, into school milk programs, which helped to make the Netherlands the tallest nation in the world after the 1950s. The situation became very different for even for low income groups because they received this nutrition for free in school and then the whole population increased to this abnormally high height levels. 
He calls it abnormally high, but it's the norm in the Netherlands. Now, it's not just school nutrition programs. It's also, you guessed it, healthcare. The Netherlands has had a national health insurance program since the Second World War, says Hurt Stulp. And in the Netherlands, everyone gets the same. It's free. It's always free. You can walk to a doctor at any time and to a hospital. So in that sense, there the barriers there are definitely less uh, than in other countries. And one part of the Netherlands healthcare system that may be particularly important when thinking about average adult height is the support that families get around the time of childbirth. That's according to Professor Carolina de Wirt at Radboud University Medical Center. The perinatal care in the Netherlands is quite special. You see the midwife around 13 times during pregnancy. You get two echoes and around three times postnatally, post-delivery. Also postpartum, a service that seems like a total godsend for new parents. Another thing that's also covered by your health care is having what we call a kraamverzorger. And this is a very important professional. It's like a maternity care. And she comes to your house for 10 days after the delivery. And she takes care of the mother, checks on her that she's healing well, uh, controls the baby to see that he's healthy, and also helps the mother learn to breastfeed, to bathe the baby, to change the baby, so all kinds of practical issues. The maternity caregiver comes to the home of new parents for 10 days, up to eight hours each of those 10 days, to help the family get off on the right track with feeding, hygiene, and health, even cook a meal, do dishes, or babysit older siblings. Overall, De Wirt says perinatal care in the Netherlands creates a sense of calm in what might otherwise be amongst the most stressful times in someone's life. And we know that stress during pregnancy, the same as unemployment or, you know, uh, financial struggles in general, they all lead to smaller babies. So if we're talking again about height and growth, I think that having a baby with less stress, anxiety, depression contributes to taller children later on. Now, the study or one of the major studies from heights for people in the Netherlands is conducted by the Netherlands uh, Central Bureau for Statistics. And recently, that Central Bureau for Statistics found that after a period of stagnation, there's now been a clear contraction in the height of Dutch men and women. Dutch men born in 2001 are now on average one centimeter shorter than the generation born in the Netherlands in the 1980s, and Dutch women are 1.4 centimeters smaller. So some reduction in stature there as well. But that brings us back to the United States and the change that we've seen here also since the 1980s. So, Professor Komlos, stand by for just a moment because I want to bring Majid Izati into the conversation. He's professor at the School of Public Health at Imperial College London, and he's with us from London. Professor Izati, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Good to be on NPR always. Okay, so obviously with the example of the Netherlands, there's several uh, public health issues that we should talk about here. Um, do you, you've done some global studies on, on height. Do you see similar either increases or reductions in average stature depending on, let's say, policy changes in various countries? 
Uh, we, we do see, we certainly see uh, uh, see uh, remarkable increases. Uh, Netherlands was mentioned in, in in the 20th century. Since then, this has been happening in some countries in uh, in Central Europe. Uh, places like Montenegro are, by any standard, now uh, indistinguishable from from the Dutch. Um, and 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 then on the other side of the wall, South Korea, more recently China, uh, they have had remarkable increases. So so the increases we see uh, on the decrease side, they tend to be more rare. Fortunately, um, the United States actually hasn't really decreased in height. It has it has dropped in rankings, uh, but it has been stagnating for a few decades. So so in some ways, you can say that things have stagnated there. Uh, other countries have done much better, and the U.S. is falling farther behind because things. Are, things have stopped getting better. Um, we have seen decreases elsewhere uh, in, in some countries in, in Africa, unfortunately, during the 80s and 90s, perhaps because of certain economic policies um, around structural adjustment and the fact that actually the people who most needed the food weren't getting the food. We have seen declines, but fewer of them than we have seen increases, fortunately. Mm. Okay, so we should just get some numbers out specifically uh, about the United States. I mean, we're not talking about people being half a foot shorter, right? We're we're talking about people, uh, on average, having shrunk what four tenths of of an inch off the the highest average height we had. Is that correct? So, I mean, it depends on the exact sources that you look at. And, and we should remember that all of these sources have a level of uncertainty on them. John Comlos mentioned some of these uh, some of these uncertainties, uh, who is being measured, who is not, and, and who takes part in a particular study. So when we take all of these, I think for all practical reasons, you know, we would say that actually the U.S. is indistinguishable from a stagnation. So, uh, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, uh, 0.3 centimeters, so that's that's maybe a, a tenth of an inch taller or, or or two tenths of an inch shorter. It's hard to say because there is always a bit of noise in the signal uh-huh. that we are looking at. So we call it a stagnation as others are improving in, in everything we have been doing since around 1985. I see. Okay. So, uh, Professor Komlos, let me go back to you on that. And first of all, I'm just referencing sort of one of the most recent compilations of some of the data uh, coming from the Washington Post. And they got interested in this because they were actually looking at if there's a pattern that they could detect regarding um, average height in various professions, uh, as you know, because they quoted you actually in, in their article. But one of their uh, analyses shows that for people... Um, let's say for American women born in 1950, um, when they reached adulthood, average height for American women was five foot four, uh, five foot four inches or five foot four point six inches, I should say. Uh, Then for people, for women born around uh, 19, between 1970 and 1975, average adult height peaked to just under 5.5 or five foot five inches. And now the thing is, is that for people born in the 80s and 90s, for women, average adult height is now back to five and uh, five foot four point six inches. So back to you know what it was for folks born in the 1950s. And I'm just trying to describe this so that people know exactly what we're talking about. When we look at men, men born in the 1950s in the United States, average height uh, was look like five foot. 10, I think, uh, 0.4 inches, according to the, the Washington Post. Um, these are white Americans. Let me, I, I forgot to mention that. That's very, very important. These are white Americans. And then, and then it, but, but now for, for folks uh, who were born in the 80s or 90s, that's dropped again now uh, to 
less than five foot, 10.6 inches. I think overall, average American men are five foot nine uh, when you ca- account for all races. Okay, so Professor Comlos, um, what's going on in the United States in the 80s that can we can attribute to this, you know, both of the curves curve downward? Well, it's very interesting that uh, 1980 is uh, exactly uh, the moment when uh, American life expectancy begins to fall behind its European counterparts. It's still increasing, but it is increasing at a uh, slower rate. So it's uh, very important in order to uh, kind of... uh, under underline the fact that uh, the human organism is not doing as well in its economic environment as it did previously. And uh, that is also the beginning of Reaganomics. It's a beginning uh, of uh, an incredible rise in inequality a new ideology in the administration that uh, puts uh, more emphasis on uh, individual agency and less on uh, a public uh, service. And as a consequence, uh, the American healthcare system becomes the most inefficient in the world. Okay, <laughs> that's a very strong statement, but you have to take into consideration that Americans uh, spend twice as much as Europeans do on healthcare and less two year and get two years less life for it. Mm. And that's the classic definition of uh, inefficiency. So you have an, an incredibly uh, inefficient healthcare system. And, and then you have uh, the problem of um, the kinds of food that uh, people eat. And unfortunately, uh, to a considerable degree, it has become a habit to have prepared food, which is less healthy than uh, homemade, uh, homemade uh, fresh uh, food. And as a consequence, uh, there is an beginning of the obesity epidemic. That's another thing to consider. Uh, So all these put together uh, indicates that uh, children and youth are not getting uh, good nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And by the way, I mean, we've done uh, several shows on childhood obesity uh, in particular, and uh, policy plays a role there, too, because in one of the shows we featured how uh, some aspects of the farm bill, the major farm bill from the 1970s, um, basically pumped more high-fructose corn syrup into the mm. American food system. Uh, right. That was a policy choice made in Washington, which then contributed to the what would soon become the obesity em- epidemic. But Professor Zati, uh, on that, is there a relationship between um, greater rates of obesity and overall height? 
There absolutely is, and, and, and there are two reasons for this. One is the food issue that, that, that again, John Comlos alluded to. Um, it's easier to eat things that are not healthy, uh, uh, and, and it's much harder to eat things that are healthy these days. And uh, the, the U.S. is, to some extent, in, in the industrialized world, an extreme of it, but it's happening elsewhere, everywhere. Some of that are things that were bad policies. Some of it is just general direction of economics and, and technology that, that weren't managed, they weren't prevented. So, so as as um, as Professor David Cutler uh, from actually Boston has has stated, it's just really easy to get chocolate chip cookies, whereas in the past it was very difficult to do that. And and whereas it's much harder to get uh, to get lean meat, uh, it's it's harder and more expensive uh, uh, more expensive to get low fat dairy yeah. and all of the things that are good for us. Pro- Professor Zadi, stand by for just a moment um, because we've got to take a quick break. But there's a lot more to discuss on how you know policies and environments are really manifesting themselves in our bodies. So we'll have more in just a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we get back to today's conversation, I want to just let you know that since it is Friday, that means in the On Point podcast feed, the Jackpod is there. The latest episode of Jack Beatty's unique analysis uh, using history and literature and politics about the world we live in now. And Jack is looking at something called the Authoritarian Handbook for 2025. So it's definitely an episode of the Jackpod you do not want to miss. Go over to the On Point podcast feed, subscribe, and then take a listen to what Jack has to say uh, for this week. That's over in the On Point podcast feed. Today, we are talking about the fact that over the last couple of decades, average height for Americans has been stagnating and even shrinking a bit. And what that says about how policies and environments and stresses manifest themselves in every American's body. 
and whether there's something that we want to do to change that. And I'm joined today by John Komlos. He's Professor Emeritus in Economics and Economic History at the University of Munich in Germany. And Majid Izadi joins us as well. He's Professor at the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. And uh, Professor Izadi, I just want to um, have you describe briefly what actually is the physiological connection between increased obesity and particularly childhood obesity uh, and how that may how that physiologically determines or contributes to the final determination of height. Sure. So, so, uh, so, so there is the there is the food aspect, and then there is the biology, the physiology, and the physiology goes both ways. So, being shorter, any amount of weight that's gained actually leads to more obesity. Obesity is a measure of how much a person weighs for their height, and and there is actually increasing evidence that 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 when growth in the first few years is stunted, um, not only there is more obesity, but it's actually more detrimental obesity because of where fat accumulates. But on the other side of this, there is also work that shows that that as obesity increases, when it, when when children get to the to the uh, to the adolescence and to the to the growth spurt that they have that it affects either the rate at which they are growing taller or the final height, and and so it, it, you can imagine this as a as 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 a circle that can be either a virtuous circle, uh, growing tall early, uh, gaining uh, less weight and less unhealthy weight, and then growing tall after that or going the other way, and both the nutrition and biology uh, go hand in hand together. We've been seeing that um, it's perhaps more evident um, in young girls that uh, there's been a growth in early onset puberty, for example. I mean, is that what you were talking about in terms of uh, height determination? Uh, it, it is. So, 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 so studies actually coming from Boston uh, started to look at initially uh, people who, uh, girls initially, who, who gain either uh, too little weight for, uh, potentially. These were ballet dancers or, or, or perhaps too much weight uh, for their height and for their age. And it seems to affect uh, the age of puberty. And again, both the onset of puberty and the growth spurt that comes after it and how much that growth is goes hand in hand with the height-weight uh, obesity relationship. So yes, the onset of puberty and the amount of uh, of, of growth spurt. Mm. Okay, so Professor Komlos, um, I, I think in order to sort of do a, an appropriate analysis here, we have to talk about p- potential uh, uh, contraindicators, if I can put it that way. Uh, and you know, the data is being collected about as many people as possible. And of course, in America, we have a multi-ethnic diversity here. So so what does does immigration or uh, does immigration have anything to do with the um, the slight reduction or or stagnation of average American adult height? No, because immigrants are not included in the sample. So uh, these results pertain only to, People who were born in America. Okay, but could I mean? But I'm wondering if they could be. Have does it matter that they many of them were born to parents who are immigrants? Well, that was also true in prior uh, <laughs> prior decades. We had a lot of immigrants in the uh, 19th century, early 20th century, and the second generation was uh, able to do quite well. So, I don't suspect. 
uh, this to be a, a big problem. I did one study on second generation uh, Americans, and they did not show a uh, significant difference uh, from the rest of the population. I see. So what really matters is that they were born, uh, he, people who were born here and grew up here, spent their childhood exactly. here. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So um, is there any evidence... Uh, Professor Zadi, that um, let's see the, these early impacts: obesity, stress, uh, other you know privations of different kinds. Can they be overcome? Uh, let's say in during the teen years, if if they are overcome, um, can people sort of get back on track to the height they might have been? I mean, uh, we, we hope so, and, and, and the evidence seems to indicate it. I mean, in fact, it would be a rather depressing world uh, to say that, look, uh, things happen during the fetal period or in the first few years of life, and then there is nothing we can do about it. And, and, and the other side of it, I guess, would be that if that really didn't matter, we would say it's free for all after five years of age. And, and, uh, and we don't say any of those, and we don't say any of those for good reason. So, 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 so things both can go backwards uh, in, 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 uh, in older childhood and adolescence. So there are places in the world that things do just fine for the first three, four years of life. And then I start falling behind because the school meal programs are not good, because adolescent care isn't as good. And there are occasionally places that that they do catch up and, and, and countries that, that the ranking becomes good. So so uh, the first, the first uh, what is called the first thousand days, so, so fetal period and the first couple of years really matter, but so does the next 17 years or 18 years after that. Um, and and there is a chance to to recorrect and readjust uh, whether it's all of the things that have been missed or some of it we don't know, but there is a chance in those later years. Hmm. Okay. So bottom line, what is emerging here, and Professor Kamalos, you pretty much said it as clearly as possible, is that um, our bodies are um, they demonstrate the impact of the policies and the decisions made about how to run a nation, right? They they show the effectiveness or lack thereof of those policies. And, it's a record. It's a record. Yeah, yeah. And so here we have in the United States, especially since that 1980s inflection point is, is so important to understand, we have an era in which Reaganomics came, came in. There was a tight embrace of free markets. For many, many working class Americans, their wages subsequently stagnated for a long period a profit, of time. A profit-oriented medical system. Yep. Changes in the food supply. Uh, reduced access to health care for many Americans because of those incre- increased costs and lack of even local hospitals. Um, much higher stress in younger uh, ages of life, family stress. And then you said that's the same time life expectancy didn't keep up with peer nations. We have the rise in the obesity epidemic and now a reduction or stagnation in height. I mean, you're describing a completely sick people, but made sick by politics, by the policies enacted supposedly on their behalf, Professor Kamlos. Exactly. History is not going to uh, judge judge us very kindly. Can it be undone? Well, of course, it could be undone, but I do not see a lot of political uh, will to do so. Well, what would you, what, 
I, you know what your your note about uh, the uh, challenges of getting things done in the United States is is uh, is appreciated. But where right. I mean, we we can't pass a budget. We're not going to change the medical system, right? Except under well, I mean, except under duress, because there were major pieces of legislation passed during the 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 pandemic, right? We had a year where people had yeah, right. Yes, right. I mean, so maybe maybe kids born that would have been a, that would have been an opportunity. A missed opportunity, right? Well, tell, but t- um, tell me more. Go ahead. Well, I, I guess to make uh, these kinds of uh, big changes, you would need to have a crisis situation, right? Like we did in the, during the financial crisis. During the financial crisis, we could have put the economy under a different track. Uh, the same thing uh, under COVID, but uh, there was uh, not the uh, ideological willpower to do so. To copy, uh, all you have to do is copy what uh, the Scandinavians or Netherlands or uh, Western European welfare states did for uh, for the medical system and for the food chain. Uh, these are two very important issues, and we haven't mentioned inequality yet. You know, inequality in the United States is uh, the highest among, uh, also among the peer nations. So the uh, development of height also also um, reflects uh, the development in inequality because uh, nobody's going to uh, become taller because Jeff Bezos was able to buy a $400 million yacht for himself. You know, that's not going to translate into uh, less expensive uh, drug prices. Mm. Well, Professor Izadi, um, and I'm hearing very carefully what, what Professor Komlos is saying, and, you know, uh, it, it is a little disheartening to hear that it will, the pol- policies were put into place, but the undoing of those policies is what may change the trajectory here. But it's not just in the United States. I, I'm understanding that um, this issue about lower stature has also become a political issue in the UK. Uh, it has in the past two or three weeks, the issue of, 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 the, of the UK falling behind its peers, uh, lagging the, the, the United States by a couple of decades, but, but, but mirroring that is very much in the news here also. Um, I mean, I must say, just, just so, so I tend to agree with with, with John Comlos that that there is there is massive political forces. Uh, we should also remember though that 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 nations uh, and, and and including the U.S. and the U.K. have room for innovation. It still takes the political will, but when we look at incredible improvements uh, in in the past few decades in in places like Japan, Korea, and China. Um, that it really was through innovations in delivering uh, good nutrition and good services to people while there were still a whole set of other social problems happening. So, so, so I hope that I hope we, we, we deal with the fundamental issues. Uh, but, but at the same time, as we do that, uh, things like a school meal programs, things around good antenatal care, these are things that I hope are easier as nations to agree with. That look, you know, how could we how could we leave alone, uh, uh, you know, young young children and let them just be on their own, uh, you know, at least we should be doing that as we deal with, again, with much broader uh, sort of social and policy debates around economics of a country. Yeah. Okay. So um, speaking of um, examples and innovation, you mentioned Korea. I'm seeing that uh, a century ago, the average South Korean woman, this is, again, a century ago, was about four foot seven. A hundred years later... They're on average eight inches taller. 
So five foot three, a huge eight inch growth on average. South Korean men now are uh, an average on average six inches taller than they were a hundred years ago. So do you have more information, Professor Izadi, about what kind of innovative things? Um, the Koreans have done because especially, I mean, I'm imagining that most of this increase in growth, what did it take place after the Korean War? Um, because the nation went through so much, you know, pain and violence and disruption prior to that. That's correct. So post Second World War in Japan and then post Korean War in Korea. Korea is actually really interesting because they have also had some of the largest increases in life expectancy. So just about many, everything has gone well for health. And and we should remember, it is a country that actually has moderate to large economic inequalities. Mm. There are the large industrialists and, and, and then there are the people who work uh, in it. Nothing in the same level as the United States or the UK, but it has large inequalities. What Korea has been remarkable and, 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 our and, and our colleagues in Korea who have been working on, on this global work with us say that what they have been remarkable has been actually uh, what, what, what we call absorbing new knowledge and using it to, to put in place programs. So Korea has been very good in early childhood nutrition. While there are social inequalities, trying to get good nutrition to schools, Korea has been really good in actually keeping the, sort of the, the healthy aspects of traditional diet, diets that are that are uh, high in, in vegetables, uh, they, they pro and then add to it providing proteins without doing all the things that, that, in, uh, that include obesity. So, so there are institutions in place that, that absorb science and turn that into action, and that action happens against the backdrop of, of economic and political debate that's still happening in, in the country. And, and in some ways, that kind of a policy innovation and, and, um, and intervention innovation is, is the other thing that, that the United States used to be at the forefront of, and as we saw during the pandemic, increasingly has actually been lost. Mm. Professor Komlos, we only have a, a minute or two left here in the conversation. And um, earlier in the show, when I asked you how tall you are, you very uh, graciously told us, but also mentioned that, you know, your childhood was spent uh, in wartime Hungary, correct? Yes, that's correct. I wonder what it makes you think that, um, you know, not that, that many American children today um, are living lives that have shades of similarity to the to the kinds of stresses um, that you experienced during during the Second World War, even though the United States is not in wartime and is ostensibly the richest country in the world. Well, yes, that uh, that is the uh, immense contradiction that you have an in incredibly uh, rich country in which a considerable segment of the population is not uh, thriving. And uh, all kinds of indicators, it's not only height, it's not only life expectancy, it's also uh, school performance, uh, suicides, uh, mass murders, uh, all sorts of things are going on here that should not be going on in uh, in a very rich country. And um, that just uh, indicates to me that the, the policies, the institutions that are in place are not adequate for a humanistic uh, perspective. Mm. Well, I think if, the, you know, given the fact that we as, as Americans are not standing so tall physically anymore, even though we like to say as a country that we're always standing tall, that 
quite that contradiction in and of itself uh, means that we deserve to to more closely examine uh, sort of why that is. And I hope this hour helped us do a little bit of that. So Professor John Komlos, Professor Emeritus in Economics and Economic History at the University of Munich in Germany, with us today from North Carolina. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And Majid Izadi, Professor at the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. Professor Izadi, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>